Radio Mano Papachango. Chris uh, and all you other tangentially peeps. Um, my name is Bridie. I live in New Zealand and um, I just wanted to say that last night I made love to someone who has opened my eyes to what true bliss feels like as well as what poetry is about uh and chris i um i just want to say i've been listening to a lot of you lately a lot of your podcasts and your conversations with people and as well as your your monologues have expanded my mind and to be honest i don't think i would have been able to have that kind of love making that I had last night without without your input <laughs> so um thank you well brighty uh I guess i uh, I'm very happy to have been involved in your love making last night in even in that peripheral sense, one of the great things. One of the very uh, fortunate things in my life is that uh, I've gotten a lot of people laid, I think, strangely. It's not something I really expected, um, but through Sex at Dawn and the podcast and the meetups that we have when we're out in the van and stuff, uh, yeah, I, I think that I've become like a... Uh, well, Sex at Dawn certainly has been a, a trigger to a lot of conversations. I've gotten, well, dozens, if not hundreds of emails from people over the years saying, you know, my husband and I, things weren't going very well and uh, we read your book or, you know, I read it or he read it or whatever. And that led to a conversation about what is human sexuality? What are we hiding from each other and why are we hiding it? And do we really need to hide it? And then we stopped hiding it and then things took off and it's been fucking awesome ever since. And, um, you know, I think even before sex at dawn came out, I sort of played that role for a lot of people. You know, I was doing my, dissertation about human sexuality and prehistory. And um, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, I have a certain uh, sort of fascination with saying things that I believe are true, even if uh, it might make other people uncomfortable. And um, I kind of feel like that's one of the things I was put on this planet to do and I've been doing since I was a child. Um, and we'll, we'll circle around to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I do think that there's something very erotic about truth 
and there's something very true about eroticism. And I feel like there's a, a fascinating connection between them because our culture is so insistent on inserting itself between them and separating them like a fucking unsheathed sword lying in the middle of the bed so that, you know, two people sleeping next to each other won't be tempted to touch each other. Um, yeah, or like a fucking chaperone on a date or something. It's like uh, our culture doesn't want us to see how much truth and eroticism, um, how happily they dance together. Because our culture wants us to pay for everything. It wants us to be unsatisfied. It wants us to be striving. It wants us to work. It wants us to feel that happiness is always just out of reach, like that carrot dangling in front of the donkey that pulls the cart um, if the donkey ever realized that the carrot is right there, right there for the taking, and there's no need to chase that carrot that's dangling out there in front of you because there are carrots all around you and they're free and that pleasure and truth and meaning and authenticity are the things that really make life worth living and we don't really need money for those things. You know, the old truism, the best things in life are free. I mean, they don't generally list erotic bliss as one of those things, but it is. All you need to do is find a person who shares your interest and is attracted to you enough to to go to those places and you get something you give to each other and there's no middleman. Nobody's taking their cut. It's like it's like uh, you know, barter before currency. There's no central bank involved. There's no taxation. It's just you and me and man, that can make life so worth living and um, and it can take away from your ambition you know people sometimes say to me like I remember I had a I forget if it was an editor or a, an agent or somebody after Sex at Dawn came out and uh, was really hitting and and they were encouraging me like to write another book right away and, um, you know, to really pursue all these deals that people were dangling in front of me in, in Hollywood to be the Anthony Bourdain of sex or to, you know, write a screenplay or, or collaborate on a film and all this, you know, everybody was like, ah, they all saw money. And I remember saying like, nah, I think I just want to, you know, take some time and travel and you know, just sort of not not do anything, not chase anything for a while. And I remember the confusion on this guy's face. And he said, but, but don't you want to be part of the national conversation? And I was like, 
no. No, actually, I don't. And and it was incomprehensible to him that I had a key to this door and I didn't really want to open the door. I didn't I just dropped the key basically. Um I think that is confusing to a lot of people. Maybe sometime I'll do a a toma about that. I was thinking this morning in the shower that, you know, the tomas that I've done are all 30 years ago in faraway places. And I was thinking maybe I should do a a toma about just what it's been like to be semi-famous or to be to have access to that world. Um it's a hard one to do because to make it interesting there'd have you know there'd be a lot of name dropping and um and I don't I, it's not like I have anything really negative to say about the people that I've met and in fact I feel very grateful to have met a lot of them um precisely because there's so much more interesting and and um uh there's a richness to them that is not um visible in their public personas. And so it's not like, wow, I'm really, you know, thrilled that I got to meet this famous person or that famous person. It's because that famous person turned out to be a really interesting person more than I was expecting. Anyway, I've been feeling weird recently. I've I've been feeling super unmotivated and um, just exhausted. And I imagine that a lot of people are feeling this way. I I just feel like um, like the constant chronic stress of the last few years has just worn me down. Um, And I recognize that I'm under way less pressure than a lot of people. People are trying to deal with kids. Uh, in in this lockdown, you know, they're not going to school. Uh, people who have lost their jobs, people who are working in restaurants or hotels or the entertainment industry, um, you know, comedians who can't go on the road, uh, people who've got massive mortgages that were based upon the assumption that things were going to keep going the way they were going, right? That's That's what debt is all about. It's a bet on stability. Uh, and when things get unstable, the debtors don't want to hear about it. The debtor doesn't want to hear like you lost your job or there's a fucking global pandemic. It's like, hey, you signed the fucking contract, pay up. Um, so I recognize that a lot of people are dealing with way more of this than I am. Uh, and yet I, I still feel fucking exhausted, so I can't imagine how they're feeling or you're feeling if you're in that condition, that, that kind of situation. Uh, my heart goes out to you because this shit is it's, – it's soul-killing. It's, it's like a fucking sandstorm of the soul. You're just getting worn down sandblasted, um, you know, the whole 
Trump administration, for me, as you know, has been extremely stressful. I, I just watch the news every day, like waiting for the next blow to democracy, the next poison dump into the aquifer of humanity. And they keep coming. They keep coming and coming and coming. It's it's like that the feeling I had with Obama when the fucking um that oil rig was just blasting into the Gulf of Mexico day after day after day, just dumping, dumping, dumping toxins into the ocean, killing, killing, killing day after day after day, and it just never seemed it didn't stop for so long. Um it feels like that's what's happening on so many levels now. So that's what I want to talk about, this this sort of uh, where we are and what we can do about it and um, some, some of my ideas about how we got here. Um, it's, it's amazing where we are. Uh, not everyone has a historical consciousness, I guess, and so – I think a lot of people um, are just trying to get by day to day, which makes sense. Um, as, you know, as I say, because so many people are so busy and they're dealing with so many immediate stressors um, that they don't really have the time to step back and think about what is going on here from a historical perspective. And also I think, you know, not everyone is cut out for that kind of thinking. And I want to be careful with this because I don't mean this in a, a dismissive way. Um, what I mean is that, you know, some people are, are tall, but they're not good at basketball. Because they don't have the hand-eye coordination or they, you know, their vision isn't very good. They can't make that three-point shot because they can't fucking see the basket, right? Even though they're seven feet tall. Um, and I think intelligence is like that. There's so many different forms of intelligence or, or, or I could say intelligence expresses itself in so many different ways. Um, manifests in different ways, Right. Uh, it's like, you know, sunlight and soil take the form of redwood trees and daisies. Um, it can happen in so many different ways. And so when I say that most people aren't configured uh, to think about things in certain ways, I don't mean that at all as an insult. I don't mean that as a condemnation. I just mean that that's the way it is. You know, not everyone is built for basketball or rugby or long distance running or whatever. Um, and that's fine that there's there's no condemnation in that. Um, but I've been thinking about how – you know, I run into a lot of people. Um, I live in this tiny town right now, uh, pretty redneck kind of vibe in some ways. Um, and there are a lot of uh, people who consider themselves to be free thinkers. 
and is a theme I'm going to I'm going to explore in some detail here in a few minutes. Uh, what does it mean to be a free thinker? Really, I think a lot of these people they're not actually free thinkers. What they are is lazy thinkers who mistake uh, going against the grain with being original. Um, and so they are walking around without masks and they're real militant about it and they're convinced that the COVID is a fucking hoax uh, cooked up by, I don't know, Big Pharma or Bill Gates or somebody to, um, you know, deprive them of their freedom. And so I, you know, I, I don't argue with these people. I try to stay away from them. Uh, it's not worth it to argue with them. And the reason it's not worth it to argue with them is that their minds are not open to argumentation because they aren't thinkers. Um, and I'm trying to, uh, as I say, not uh, conflate seeing that someone is not a thinker with thinking they're stupid. They're not stupid. They're just not good at this kind of thinking or they're not informed or they're too fucking busy doing other things, raising their kids and trying to pay the mortgage and taking care of their livestock or whatever it is. Um, and yet they feel uh, qualified. And so it's a weird thing. It's like everyone thinks they're a plumber. Uh, and so there's, you know, shit flowing through living rooms all over the country because we've stopped recognizing that some people are plumbers and some people aren't. Everyone thinks their opinion is equally valid. Everyone is spouting their opinions on social media, present company included. And uh, so it's like this kind of radical democracy, in a sense, where everyone's voice is uh, being broadcast. Everyone has access to these platforms that used to be guarded, right? It used to be very hard to publish a book. Now, everyone can publish a book on Amazon self-publishing or whatever self-publishing. Um, everyone can write a blog. Everyone can... Uh, do a podcast. Everyone can throw something up on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And yet, as with plumbers, you know, 90% of the people doing that aren't actually, they don't actually know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about, but they're still talking. And it occurred to me that until recently, People who don't have the capacity or the time to think about stuff, um, this kind of abstract stuff, were told what to think by religion. And in many parts of the world, they still are. But in the United States, religion has lost a lot of its grip um, because uh, it's been exposed as corrupt uh, at least it's lost its its grip in the you know a lot of the sort of more urban areas, and what passes for religion in a lot of the rural areas is really um, 
I don't know. It, it feels like something else. These these mega churches and guys on TV, you know, asking for money, and it's just like a. It's become I don't know, sort of carnival barker kind of thing. Um, but it is fulfilling the hunger uh, that I think people have for guidance because I think that what happens is that. People do recognize that they don't know what to think and they don't have time or capacity to figure it out for themselves, most people. And so they're looking for guidance. And the fact is that the traditional sources of that guidance are fading fast. And so, you know, when someone used to look to the Bible, for example, or the interpretations of the Bible that were offered by priests and rabbis and ministers, um, they're not looking there anymore. And yet they still have that hunger for guidance. And so I think a lot of secular um, sources of guidance are now um, assuming some of that power. And, you know, and, and I think Donald Trump is a, is a religious phenomenon. The fact that, you know, evangelical Christians believe that he is the manifestation of God's will is amazing. It's incredible that this three-time married pussy-grabbing lunatic is seen as, you know, an instrument of God's will. Anyway, I, I came across a quote from Christopher Lash, who was a historian. Uh, this is from his 1996 book, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. Uh, I'll read this to you. He says, the same benefits misleadingly associated with religion, such as security spiritual comfort, dogmatic relief from doubt, are thought to flow from a therapeutic politics of identity. In effect, identity politics has come to serve as a substitute for religion, or at least for the feeling of self-righteousness that is so commonly confused with religion. That's a great sentence there. The feeling of self-righteousness that is so commonly confused with religion. So if you're, uh, you know, your politics, of a, your identity politics is LGBTQ, um, radical, there's a self-righteousness that comes with that for sure. In fact... From outside, what it looks like, uh, you know, to to the world is in fact um, self righteousness. That's why it's so repulsive to so many people, and and not just the, you know, trans uh, radicals or the, um, you know. You pick it. There's so many different, um, you know, environmental radicals or vegan radicals or, you know, whatever it is. Like, I'm fucking right. 
I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And that, as he says, as Lash says, is a feeling of self-righteousness that until now has generally been associated with religion, but now it's associated with identity politics as well. So you're pro-Trump. Anyone who isn't into Trump is a fucking idiot or a communist or a socialist or a fag or whatever it is. Um, you know, you're anti-Trump. Anyone who thinks anything positive about Trump is a deluded fucking moron. Uh, it works in, in every – cuts in every direction. All right. Back to the quote. These developments shed further light on the decline of democratic debate. Diversity, a slogan that looks attractive on the face of it, has come to mean the opposite of what it appears to mean. In practice, diversity turns out to legitimize a new dogmatism in which rival minorities take shelter behind a set of beliefs impervious to rational discussion. So I think that um, what Lash is, is getting at there is that the same sort of incapacity for dialogue that, you know, fueled the Hundred Years' War in medieval Europe, uh, that fueled the Crusades where Christians were marauding through the lands of Islam, uh, that fueled the fucking religious, you know, the, or tribal conflicts between the, the Hutu and the Tutsi in Rwanda leading to mass genocide, that kind of incapacity for dialogue and compromise has taken over American political life because we associate that um, – because we identify with our little faction and that little faction is our shelter. It's our shelter from doubt. Um, and doubt freaks us out. And so we are fractionalized, fractured, balkanized, separated, and this plays into the hands of corporate power. Divide and conquer. We're divided, but corporate power runs on. And we're, it's like, you know, we can't form a union because we can't agree on anything. From a historical perspective, it makes perfect sense. It's almost inevitable. All right, before I go on with this diatribe, let me break it up with some music. I realized that um, in the last episode uh, with Rick Beato, I talked about, or he and I talked about, a lot of music that, uh, that I really love. And uh, I don't play often on the podcast. I don't think I've played any of it on the podcast. So I'm going to play something from Peter Gabriel's uh, Passion which is the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ. Seems like a apropos choice. And this one describes uh, how I'm feeling and how I think a lot of people are feeling these days. The piece is called Disturbed. Hope you enjoy it.
Disturbed. Peter Gabriel, The Passion. Um, To continue with this this sort of thought about how politics in the United States has collapsed in some ways, I thought it would be interesting to talk about Obama because I think when people hear me trashing Trump, they think uh, I'm a huge Obama fan. And I I was initially uh, and I still am in the sense that I think – I think Obama is a decent person. I think he's a very intelligent person. And, uh, you know, he's definitely a guy I'd love to hang out with. But I think, you know, I think Obama's way smarter than me. But I think there are things that he doesn't get. There are things he can't see. And any perspective has blind spots. And his are... Very self-serving in some ways. And I don't think he recognizes how corrosive his administration was to the values and the the sort of aspirations that he rode into the White House. What I mean is like one of his slogans was hope and change you can believe in. That is a direct lie. That is 180 degrees from the truth. There was no change we could believe in. Guantanamo is still open. That's the thing he said he was going to do first. It's still open. We don't talk about it anymore, but there are people there still in chains, in cages, who've never had a trial. And they'll die there because they're forgotten. And God knows what kind of torture is being inflicted upon them. These are people who got picked up in Afghanistan because some family feud decided that they were going to use the Americans and say that guy's a terrorist. He's with Al Qaeda, whatever. And there's no way to figure it out now. There's no way to figure out who's innocent and who isn't. And they've been in there for, what, 20 years now? There are a lot of things to be pissed off about with the Obama administration, their treatment of whistleblowers, their deportation records, the the way Obama normalized drone strikes in countries where no war has been declared, killing innocent people, collateral damage, acceptable death of innocence. Um, but I, I found a, a passage from his autobiography that I think really sums up Um, the problem with Obama. He writes, reading the transcript now, he's talking about a transcript of a speech that he gave to the press um, when the, um, the oil rig was spewing oil. He says, reading the transcript now a decade later, I'm struck by how calm and cogent I sound. Maybe I'm surprised because the transcript doesn't register what I remember feeling at the time or come close to capturing what I really wanted to say before the assembled White House press corps. And then he goes on to outline what he really wanted to say. He really wanted to say that the government wasn't fully equipped to do its job in large part because for the past 30 years, a big chunk of American voters had bought into the Republican idea that government was the problem and that business always knew better and had elected leaders who made it their mission to gut environmental regulations, starve agency budgets, denigrate civil servants, and allow industrial polluters to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. 
that the government didn't have better technology than BP did to quickly plug the hole because it would be expensive to have such technology on hand, and we Americans didn't like paying higher taxes, especially when it was to prepare for problems that hadn't happened yet. This is me again. What Obama doesn't say there, but could have, is... You wouldn't have to pay higher taxes. You just have to redirect some of them billions of dollars, trillions of dollars in the defense budget. You just maybe have, you know, one F-26 fewer or one aircraft carrier less or wait another year to make that 10th aircraft carrier and put some of that money redirected toward environmental protection. So you don't even – so it's a false choice he's setting up here, higher taxes – versus letting the environment go to hell. And and as we'll see, that's like one of the central problems that Obama, the way Obama thinks. Anyway, back to Obama now. He says, the only way to truly guarantee that we didn't have another catastrophic oil spill in the future was to stop drilling entirely. But that wasn't going to happen because at the end of the day, we Americans loved our cheap gas and big cars more than we cared about the environment except when a complete disaster was staring us in the face. And in the absence of such a disaster, the media rarely covered efforts to shift American America off fossil fuels or pass climate legislation, since actually educating the public on long-term energy policy would be boring and bad for ratings. And the only thing I could be certain of was that for all the outrage being expressed at the moment about wetlands and sea turtles and pelicans, what the majority of us were really interested in was having the problem go away. For me to clean up yet one more mess decades in the making with some quick and easy fix so that we could all go back to our carbon-spewing, energy-wasting ways without having to feel guilty about it. I didn't say any of that. Instead, I somberly took responsibility and said it was my job to get this fixed. Now, let's go back and look at that a little bit. I've already pointed out the false choice between high taxes and environmental protection. And as I've said a million times on this podcast, one of the keys to thinking clearly and to recognizing bullshit is to question the premise. Because any salesman will tell you that if you can get the customer to accept your choice, the choice that you the choice that you offer him, then you've got him because he's gonna buy it. if you can say to someone, now would you prefer the the Lexus or the the Avalon? And the person's like, well, I think I like the, the Avalon better because I can't afford the, the Lexus. Well, you sold yourself an Avalon. Whereas if the person says, wait a minute, I don't need to buy a Lexus or a fucking Avalon. I can get a Ford if I want. Question the premise. Don't accept the framing. Um, so he frames the issue of environmental regulation and, and protection as higher taxes. Bullshit. That's a bullshit framing. There are many... It's a lot of money that's being spent on a lot of things that could be redirected, reprioritized toward environmental regulation without raising taxes. Uh, and also, what's it mean to raise taxes? That doesn't mean that the guy who works down at the factory has to pay more taxes. It might just mean that billionaires pay more taxes. So raising their taxes, that's not a big problem for most people, 99.9% .9 of people. So again, false framing.
He says the only way to truly guarantee we didn't have another catastrophic oil spill in the future was to stop drilling entirely. Bullshit. That's bullshit. This was deep water horizon was the name of the oil rig. It was drilling in the deepest waters of the Gulf of Mexico. You could stop doing that and keep drilling in shallower waters where divers could go down and fix the fucking problem if need be. Or you could say, you know what? We're not going to drill in, in ocean water anymore because it's too complicated. The, the environment is too fragile. We're only going to drill for oil in environments that are not this rich, not this fragile, like fucking West Texas, like Oklahoma, like, you know, the fucking Gulf, uh, Gulf of, uh, not the Gulf, but the um, Saudi Arabia. It's a fucking desert. You get an oil spill in Saudi Arabia, okay, there might be some rodents or something that are going to die, but you're not wiping out coral reefs. You're not wiping out entire ecosystems. So again, it's a false choice. Oh, the only way to solve the problem would be to just stop oil entirely. Bullshit, man. That's bullshit. That's exactly what the oil companies want you to think. Oh, well, if, you know, the only way to solve the problem is you can't drive your car anymore and you can't, you know, it's, they want to take away your hamburgers. That is bullshit. And here's Obama self-righteously buying into the bullshit. And then you get to the end of it and he says, uh, you know, all the outrage and da-da-da, but what most people really cared about was make it go away, clean it up. I want to keep driving my big car, blah, blah, blah. It's your job, if you're president, especially if you're president who is elected on hope and change you can believe in, it's your job to say the truth. Tell the fucking truth, man. How do you expect this 80% of people who don't have the time, don't have the capacity, don't have the energy, don't have the luxury to investigate alternative energy sources, to investigate the true damage of the oil industry, to investigate whether a smaller car might actually um, be more efficient and more fun to drive and safer than the big old piece of shit that you've got, especially if the government's going to subsidize the new car and subsidize you getting rid of the old car, which happens in many countries. It's your job to say that shit. And here he is, 10 years later, almost proud of the fact that he did not tell the truth. I didn't say any of that. Remember? He says, reading it now, I'm amazed how calm I sound because I didn't say, he says, I remember feeling, I, I'm surprised because the transcript doesn't register what I remember feeling at the time or come close to capturing what I really wanted to say. You're the president of the fucking United States. Why did you not say what you really wanted to say? Why did you not tell the truth? And here, 10 years later, with all the perspective, all the luxury, all the fuck you money anyone can possibly imagine having... Why are you now perversely proud of not having told the truth? You're bragging about 
lying. Because this is, these are lies of omissions. Lies of omission. This is, you're not saying what you know is true. You're not saying what you really want to say. And yet you're presenting yourself to us as a truth teller. Even now in your biography. And with all the intelligence in the world, with the Harvard degrees and the amazing access to intelligent people and all the admiration and everything else that he's received, he still doesn't recognize that he's part of the problem. That him not telling the truth, him not saying what he knew to be true at that moment and many other moments is people can sense that. Even if people aren't capable of putting their finger on exactly what's going on, exactly what he said that they don't believe, people can sense that you are full of shit, man. You're a liar. You're a good-looking, charismatic, sweet-talking liar with a great three-point shot. And what happens when that sense emanates through the country, when millions of people who voted for you because they thought you were going to change things, when they see that you are just another fucking liar, what happens is a lot of them give up. And those who don't give up become very attracted to someone who appears to be telling it like it is, who, abe- who appears to lack that smooth, stylistic, bullshit-spewing persona like Trump. Someone who says, yeah, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit what you think. Trump came in as a joke. Trump came in not intending to win. He's the accidental president. And the reason the doors all opened for him was that there were tens of millions of people who were tired of the bullshit. And they prefer a change for the worse to no change at all. And as I've said many times on the podcast, as much as I despise Trump, as horrific as his presidency has been, I understand why millions of people voted for him. And it's because of this, of what Obama admitted to here, that he didn't tell the truth. All right, time for a little more music. This will raise the mood a little bit because I know this is this is getting heavy. Uh, this is one of my favorite bands, Cuban rappers Orishas. This song is called Distinto, and it's got a groove that just gives and gives and gives some more. Distinto by Orishas. Si la cosa suena como está pensando, no veo pretexto para estar hablando. La banda ya llegó. Ella, ella, ella. Hay fronda van así, sí. Bajo paso ni pongo a dormir, mi. 
en frecuencia Yo hace rato busco esto pa' ponerte bueno Yo hace rato busco esto pa' ponerte a ti De lo mío, de lo tuyo, pa' que te enteres De lo mío, pa' ti, esto pa' te hacer Es que yo ni te lo vendo, ni te lo presto, ni lo regalo Boris es lo que trae, es un nuevo flow, flow Que hace palo, palo Toma esto que te traigo, que esto es bueno Esto que traemos, ritmo fresco, no con bota Así que bota de mi boca loca, tú esa nota Toda esa gente que en mi ritmo se sofoca Orishas. Uh, the album's called El Kilo, which I highly recommend if you like that kind of groove. All right, for the last part of this uh, this extended rant, I, I'd like to do sort of a, what makes this book great thing, uh, but not really because I'm just going to mix it into this and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read um, 
some selected sections of it. It's uh, and it really sort of ties all this together. It's by Paul Graham. Uh, you might remember I, I read an essay by him uh, a while ago on the what makes this book great thing. And this is a similar essay. It's it's also about how to think. Uh, in fact, the essay is called How to Think for Yourself. He just published it in November. And I uh, highly recommend you read the whole thing. But if you don't have time or interest, I'm going to read the parts that uh, seem most salient to me uh, in this this issue of how to recognize bullshit, how to not be influenced by bullshit, and how to um, know yourself. Because, as I said, there's no shame in not being uh, particularly good at this. And, and so there are things that you can do. There are ways you can intentionally learn to think more clearly and um, – to defend yourself because, as I said, it used to be we could all just get together and be good Catholics and and know what to think. And, you know, we'd go every Sunday for the indoctrination. And uh, and I don't say that cynically. I, I you know, I, I grew up sort of scoffing at religion uh, and being this sort of, uh, you know, proud, secular – um, seeing through the bullshit of religion, you know, the talking snakes and the, the fucking Noah with the two of every animal on his boat and all this stuff. Obviously nonsense. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've come to see that there are reasons that these stories have lasted for a couple thousand years now uh, or longer because a lot of these stories were already ancient when they were written down for the first time. Um, and I think this is it. This is the, the, what is so dangerous about our current situation is that so many people who don't know what to think or how to think aren't being told what to think by a benevolent authority. Um, you know, and it's complicated because I don't think that most of the authorities were benevolent. Um, but if you read the teachings of Jesus himself and ignore all the con artists who have co-opted it and turned it into a business and a power play and a, um, a way to control and, and get their fingers into other people's sexual lives and, and, you know, all that stuff. If you ignore the politics and the perversity and you just look at what Jesus actually said, it makes a lot of sense. It's basically the same thing that Buddha said. Take care of your brothers and sisters. Don't judge. Don't be the, the one to throw the first stone because you are not innocent. You have not lived a life without sin. So who are you to judge? Right? I mean, these are ancient teachings that make community possible. And they've been so corrupted that people have rejected the messengers. And I get it. I think that rejection is overdue and is necessary and is warranted. Jerry Falwell Jr. 
and his wife are fucking the pool boy while they are preaching abstinence and you know strict monogamy and all that shit to the, you know the people at Jerry Falwell University and so on look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about now I don't think they were wrong to fuck the pool boy I think they were wrong to pretend that the shit that they were preaching was true just like Obama was wrong to fucking ride into office on hope and change we can believe in and then deliver neither It's the hypocrisy that's wrong. Um, And so how do you recognize and defend yourself from this kind of shit? Well, here's Paul Graham, how to think for yourself. It starts off, there are some kinds of work that you can't do well without thinking differently from your peers. To be a successful scientist, for example, it's not enough just to be correct. Your ideas have to be both correct and novel. You can't publish papers saying things other people already know. You need to say things no one else has realized yet. Okay, well, this is true in terms of being a a sort of leading researcher scientist, but it ignores the fact that most scientists are, are confirming what someone else already thought. Most physicists are not fucking Einstein. Most physicists are doing calculations and getting the right answers. Um, and so I get his point. His point is that there are some endeavors that require original thought and some that don't, and he's using science as an example. It's shorthand. I take his point, but I think it's more complicated than that. Um, And then he goes through some other examples like investors and people who start up companies, and, and he says ditto for essayists, referring to himself, of course, here. An essay that told people things they already knew would be boring. You have to tell them something new. Um, yeah, but you can also be a stylist. You can write so well and think so clearly that even if you are telling them something they already knew, you can do it in a way um, that's still worth reading, um, which I think he does in this in a way. I don't think he's saying anything particularly radical in this essay, but he says it so well and sort of breaks it down so well that it's still worth listening to. And then he goes on and he says, but this pattern isn't universal. In fact, it doesn't hold for most kinds of work. In most kinds of work, to be an administrator, for example, all you need is the first half. All you need is to be right. It's not essential that everyone else be wrong. So in other words, you don't have to have these novel ideas that that sort of expand the realm of knowledge. You just need to do your job well. And that's what most jobs are. Um, you know, most teachers, they just teach what someone else already figured out. They don't need to figure out new things. Um, and most businesses run because you get competent people to do what you ask them to do. Um, there's little room uh, for novelty in those kinds of work. Um, and he's right. He says, I wish someone had told me about this distinction when I was a kid because it's one of the most important things to think about when you're deciding what kind of work you want to do. Do you want to do the kind of work where you can only win by thinking differently from everyone else? I suspect most people's unconscious mind will answer that question before their conscious mind has a chance to. Hmm. 
Interesting. So think about that. And he gets into to career choice here. Do you want to go into a career, or if you're already in a career, do you want to stick to a career? Are you well suited to a career where success means you think of something no one else has thought of before? Paul Graham says, independent mindedness seems to be more a matter of nature than nurture, which means if you pick the wrong type of work, you're going to be unhappy. If you're naturally independent-minded, you're going to find it frustrating to be a middle manager. And if you're naturally conventional-minded, you're going to be sailing into a headwind if you try to do original research. This insight, I think, I mean, in many ways, it, it sort of shaped my life and my consciousness because my father, who was a great influence on me, was a very independent thinker, and yet he worked in big companies his whole life, um, basically, until the very end. Um, and so he was always in a conflict because he always wanted to do things a new way. He was always finding new interesting ways. And he was frustrated when he was in situations where his boss wasn't interested in new ways. His boss just wanted him to do the thing he was hired to do. And because he was very smart and very charismatic, he rose up through these companies um, and into the executive suite. He was a senior vice president in a few companies before he retired. Um, but he got fired from several places too. He had a lot of conflict and difficulty and frustration because essentially he was a free thinker in an environment that does not value free thinking. In fact, it finds free thinking to be problematic. Um, so back to the essay. And, well, anyways, and how that you know, sort of formed my consciousness was I saw him in these conflicts all the time, coming home from work so frustrated, so like um, limited in what he could do that I very early got this idea like I don't ever want to be in that position. I will sacrifice security and money and family and, and all these things for the freedom to do whatever the fuck I want when and how I want to do it. Um, you know, they say we live our parents' unlived lives. And in many ways, I think my life has been a reaction to that frustration in my father's life. Um, think about your own life and, and how what you're doing may be a response to what you saw your parents doing or not doing. Back to the essay. One difficulty here, though, is that people are often mistaken about where they fall on the spectrum from conventional to independent-minded. So people misjudge themselves, right? They don't really know because everyone wants to say, oh, I'm independent-minded, but a lot of people actually aren't. Um, and, you know, so having that kind of job where you need to come up with something original could be very, very difficult uh, if you misjudge who you are, right? Um, Conventional-minded people, Graham says, don't like to think of themselves as conventional-minded. And in any case, it genuinely feels to them 
as if they make up their own minds about everything. It's just a coincidence that their beliefs are identical to their peers. And the independent-minded, meanwhile, are often unaware how different their ideas are from conventional ones, at least until they state them publicly. So think about that. Are your ideas the same as your friend's ideas? Or are your ideas often very different from their ideas? Do you listen to the same music? Do you, like, go to the same restaurants when restaurants are open? Um, Do you wear the same kind of clothes? Do you, like, do the same things in your spare time? There's no shame in that. Um, Recognize it and then use that self-knowledge to help you making these other choices. Um, Graham says, by the time we reach adulthood, most people know roughly how smart we are uh, in the narrow sense of ability to solve preset problems, right, like testing, because we're constantly being tested and ranked. But schools generally ignore independent-mindedness, except to the extent they try to suppress it. So this is a thing. You might say, I didn't do real well in school. I'm not very smart. Well, it may be you are very smart. You're just very independent-minded, and schools don't like that. Um, okay, I'm going to jump forward a bit here because then he goes into uh, some techniques um, to sort of make yourself more independent-minded. Uh, and one of them, for example, is try to meet as many different types of people as you can. It'll decrease the influence of your immediate peers if you have other groups of peers. Plus, if you're part of different worlds, you can often import ideas from one to the other. Great insight and one of the best reasons to travel. Now, he says you can also take more explicit measures to prevent yourself from automatically adopting conventional opinions. When you hear someone say something, stop and ask yourself, is that true? Um. I'm not saying to say that out loud, but rather think about it yourself. Take upon yourself the burden of evaluating what you hear. Treat it as a puzzle. You know that some accepted ideas will later turn out to be wrong. See if you can guess which ones. The end goal is not to find flaws in the things you're told, but to find the new ideas that are being concealed by the broken ones. So this game should be an exciting quest for novelty, not a boring protocol for intellectual hygiene. I love that phrase, intellectual hygiene. And you'll be surprised when you start asking, is this true? How often the answer is not an immediate yes. If you have any imagination, you're more likely to have too many leads to follow than too few. More generally, your goal should be not to let anything into your head unexamined. And things don't always enter your head in the form of statements. Some of the most powerful influences are implicit. How do you even notice these? By standing back and watching how other people get their ideas. When you stand back at a sufficient distance, you can see ideas spreading through groups of people like waves. The most obvious are in fashion. You notice a few people wearing a certain kind of shirt, and then more and more, until half the people around you are wearing the same shirt. You may not care much what you wear, 
But there are intellectual fashions too, and you definitely don't want to participate in those. Not just because you want sovereignty over your own thoughts, but because unfashionable ideas are disproportionately likely to lead somewhere interesting. The best place to find undiscovered ideas is where no one else is looking. Seems like an obvious point, right? So think about that. What fashions have you adopted without really thinking about it? What clothes are hanging in your closet because you've seen other people wearing them, but that you actually don't think look good? Okay, and then he goes in um, the next section of the essay where he's going to break it down. Um, he wants to look at what is independent-mindedness. So he's talked about how to cultivate it, um, some of the places to sort of look for, for new ideas, novel ideas, and ways to recognize conventional thinking in other people. He says, now, to go beyond this general advice, we need to look at the internal structure of independent-mindedness, at the individual muscles we need to exercise, as it were. It seems to me that it has three components. Fastidiousness about truth, resistance to being told what to think, and curiosity. So these are the three components of independent-mindedness fastidiousness about truth, resistance to being told what to think, and curiosity. So he makes an interesting point here. Fastidiousness about truth means more than just not believing things that are false. It means being careful about degree of belief. For most people, degree of belief rushes unexamined toward the extremes. The unlikely becomes impossible and the probable becomes certain. To the independent-minded, however, this seems unpardonably sloppy. They're willing to have anything in their heads from highly speculative hypotheses to apparent tautologies but on subjects they care about, everything has to be labeled with a carefully considered degree of belief. That's why I, I this is Chris now, that's why I always go back to that quote, that quote, honor those who seek the truth, beware of those who claim to have found it, right? There's something beautiful and honest and humble and wise in lack of certainty, in this being careful about degree of belief, right? Even little phrases, like in the paragraph I just read to you, he says, it seems to me that independent-mindedness has three components. He doesn't say independent-mindedness has three components. Here they are. He says, it seems to me. So even this essay is an example of what he's talking about. I think I figured this out, and this is what it looks like to me. But this is part of a conversation. This is not the end of the conversation, right? There's no certainty here. There's no shutting everything down. 
without fastidiousness, fastidiousness about truth, you can't be truly independent-minded. It's not just enough to have resistance to being told what to think. Those kinds of people, now, this is what I was getting at earlier with the anti-mask crowd, the guys screaming at the post office or the grocery store about how it's all a conspiracy. They think they're independent thinkers, but here's what I think they are. He says those kinds of people reject conventional ideas only to replace them with the most random conspiracy theories. And since these conspiracy theories have often been manufactured to capture them, they end up being less independent-minded than ordinary people because they're subject to much more exacting master than mere convention. What I mean by that, or what Paul Graham means by that, is that these people think they're independent-minded because they're rejecting the status quo. They're rejecting the idea that, uh, you know, they get as far as saying, yeah, Obama's full of shit. But then what they do is they listen to Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly or uh, Tucker Carlson. And they don't understand that these guys are the political equivalent of the preachers on TV asking you to sell your house and send them the money because God will, you know, give it back to you a hundredfold. These guys are entertainers, carnival barkers who know what they know there's a market for a certain kind of certainty. There's a market for a certain kind of thinking. There's an anger and a resentment and a fear that they can connect to. And once they connect to it, then they can manipulate people. It's the same thing that's been going on for thousands of years. What are people afraid of? If I can offer them an antidote to the things that they're afraid of, they'll give me anything. So what does religion do? Religion says, oh, you're afraid to die? We'll give you eternal life. Just sign up. Give us your money. Then you don't need to worry about dying anymore. And if you've been an asshole your whole life, if you've hurt people and cheated and lied and stolen, you know, for $5,000, we'll give you an indulgence that's like a VIP ticket into heaven, even though you're a really bad guy. Come into confession. Tell us all the horrible things you do. So then we can use it against you if we need to. These are old techniques. So you're a white guy, high school educated, your dad worked in a factory, you thought you were going to be able to work in a factory and support your family, but now you're humiliated because there are no factories, they've shut down, there's no way for you to make a decent living. Okay, well, I'll tell you it's not your fault. I'll tell you it's the Mexicans or the blacks, or I'll tell you it's the East Coast liberals. I'll give you relief, even though it's a temporary relief. I'll give you a target to direct your fear and hatred and anger. Those messages are manufactured 
to capture that audience. That's why Fox News is so successful. They know exactly who they're talking to, and they know exactly what those people need to hear. Back to the essay. The second component of independent-mindedness, resistance to being told what to think, is the most visible of the three. But even this is often misunderstood. The big mistake people make about it is to think of it as a merely negative quality. The language we use reinforces that idea. You're unconventional. You don't care what other people think. But it's not just a kind of immunity. In the most independent-minded people, the desire not to be told what to think is a positive force. It's not mere skepticism, but an active delight in ideas that subvert the conventional wisdom. The more counterintuitive, the better. So think about that. It's not just that you reject, reject, reject. It's that you're attracted to counterintuitive ideas that actually make sense. It fucking blows your mind in a good way. And that's like earlier I said something about truth being erotic. And I've always felt that. Like understanding something that is unexpected is, it's like a brain orgasm. It's like, fuck, that's amazing. That's fucking incredible. I love that. I've always loved that. And here he says, some of the most novel ideas seem at the time almost like practical jokes. Think how often your reaction to a novel idea is to laugh. It's not because the novel ideas are funny per se, but because novelty and humor share a certain kind of surprisingness. While not identical, the two are close enough that there's a definite correlation between having a sense of humor and being independent-minded, just as there is between being humorless and being conventional-minded. I think this is so true. All of the most intelligent people I know are funny, and they like to laugh. They delight in the unexpected. Okay, now he says, I don't think we can, can significantly increase our resistance to being told what to think. It seems the most innate of the three components. People who have this quality as adults usually showed all too visible signs of it as children. But if we can't increase our resistance to being told what to think, we can at least shore it up by surrounding ourselves with other independent-minded people. Right. So he thinks that that's a, an innate quality uh, that can't really be. It's not a muscle that can be strengthened. You either have it or you don't to some degree or other. Um, but you can strengthen that capacity by surrounding yourself with independent-minded people. Okay, the third component of independent-mindedness, curiosity, may be the most interesting. In my experience, he says, independent-mindedness and curiosity predict one another perfectly. Everyone I know who's independent-minded is deeply curious, and everyone I know who's conventional-minded is not curious, except, curiously, children. All small children are curious. Perhaps the reason 
is that even the conventional-minded have to be curious in the beginning in order to learn what the conventions are, whereas the independent-minded are the gluttons of curiosity who keep eating even after they're full. Um, uh, that could be, but it could also be that our society is set up to drive that curiosity out of us, right? There's some, there's some quote, each of us is born unique and, and dies a, a carbon copy or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But think about it. It, it. He mentioned it earlier in the essay where, you know, education, the educational system is not about cultivating curiosity in most cases. It's about learn what I tell you to learn, think of it the way I told you to think of it, and prove in the test that you did. That's it. Do what you're told. Get up when the bell rings. Don't go to the bathroom without permission. Hall pass. Fuck. Fuck hall passes. Education is about following orders. It's not about following your curiosity. So, yeah, maybe there's a, a you know, a functional value to curiosity in children that reduces as people get older. But I think it's only because people are in a society that doesn't want their curiosity because most jobs don't value it. Most jobs, you want that sort of follower of orders. Um, okay, we're getting to the end here. Is there a way to cultivate curiosity, he says. To start with, you want to avoid situations that suppress it. <laughs> so don't go to school. How much does the work you're doing currently engage your curiosity? If the answer is not much, maybe you need to change something. The most important active step you can take to cultivate curiosity is probably to seek out the topics that engage it. Few people are curious about everything, and it doesn't seem as if you can choose which topics interest you, so it's up to you to find them. That's so true. I was talking to someone recently, um, and her question was, when you were a kid, were there any sort of indications that you can remember of who you would become as an adult? And one of them I remember is the first girlfriend I had. Uh, I wasn't really a child at the time. I was 15. Um, but I was... I, I sort of approached sex with her as an experimental situation. I was so interested in how her body worked. And I got this um, lockbox, uh, like a toolbox with a key, and I bought all these um, sex toys online, you know, vibrators and just whatever, all the stuff that was available in 1977. Uh, you know, I went to like 
sex shops and stuff and would buy all these things. And I'd try them out on her and she was down and it was like, okay, so on a scale of one to five, how good does this feel? And how's this feel? And what about this spot and that spot? And what if I do this and that? And she was game, you know, give, (laughs) give it up to her. But like, to me, it was just like, wow, this is really interesting. Like how I want to know how this works. I want to understand the female body and, and, you know, this is like a whole world opened up and, um, you know, so I guess it's not, if, if you, I don't know where she is now, but if we tracked her down and said, you know, your boyfriend from high school wrote this book about sex is a big bestseller. I don't think she would be surprised. Yeah. Okay. Last paragraph here. Curiosity seems to be more individual than fastidiousness about truth or resistance to being told what to think. To the degree people have the latter two, they're usually pretty general, whereas different people can be curious about very different things. Right. So in other words, you can have the second two, the fastidiousness about truth and resistance to being told what to think. Those are like other people have those same qualities and it expresses the same way. But your curiosity might be about sex. It might be about astrophysics. It might be about cooking. It might be about dance. It might be about who knows what. But you'll have those other two qualities in a more general sense. Um, So Graham says, perhaps curiosity is the compass here. Perhaps if your goal is to is to discover novel ideas, your motto should not be to do what you love so much as to do what you're curious about. I think that's a a really interesting point because I think a lot of people have been misled by the advice to do what you love. Um, Follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell put it, you know, one of the most famous slogans ever. Um, But if you break down, if you really think about follow your bliss, I would say that encompasses Graham's point, whereas do what you love doesn't really. Because do what you love, I mean, you know, you could love playing basketball, to go back to the, the metaphor I've been using here, and be pretty good at it. But you try to get into the NBA, the odds are that you're not going to make it. So for every everyone who makes it, there are 10,000 guys who thought they were good enough, loved the sport, and went for it and failed. Um, you know, take another example from my own experience, photography. When I was traveling in the 80s and 90s, I was in beautiful places. And um, I was given a really nice camera by my boss when I quit my job in New York. And I learned to use it. And I got really interested in photography. And I was pretty good at it. I had some photographs that, (coughs) excuse me, won uh, competitions. There was a Rand McNally competition I entered. And my photograph won. It was in the cover of the Rand McNally travel calendar that year or something. Um, I took some classes with uh, photographers from National Geographic uh, at night school when I was living in Manhattan for a while. And 
But I dropped it because I realized that it was draining the pleasure out of travel for me. And to do it as a job would um, would not be fun for me. And I, I think that happens with a lot of jobs. You take something you love and you turn it into your work. And essentially what you've done is, in many cases, you've removed the love from it. I had someone recently, I posted some photo on Instagram and somebody was like, hey, have you ever considered getting a better camera? Because you're in a lot of beautiful spots and these are all, you know, iPhone or whatever. And I I wrote back and I said, no, because I don't want to carry a camera around everywhere. I remember seeing things when I was traveling. I'd see some beautiful spot and, you know, compose it. Oh, there's that volcano in the background and there's this wall and the paint is peeling. So you can see all these different colors. And there's, you know, broken glass like embedded on the top of the wall is a, you know, anti-theft thing. And there's – and, okay, so this – I could just take a picture and keep walking or I could say, all right, at 7.30 in the morning, the light's going to be just right to catch the side of that volcano, hit this wall, uh, really bring out the colors here, saturate with that deep golden light that you get at that hour. And then I need – like I need a kid or I need something in the foreground, somebody walking by like, oh, there's that kid over there. Maybe I can hire that kid and tell him to come back here tomorrow and like, you know, kick a soccer ball against the wall. And oh, yeah, does he have a friend? Oh, yeah, that friend, the friend's more sort of interesting looking. So maybe the friend and him and then like, where's, I mean, some people would take pleasure in that. And those people should be photographers. I did not take pleasure in that. I recognize that to get the best shot would require a kind of planning and it would have to take precedent over my travel. It would it would become the focus of my traveling. Um, and I, that's, I didn't like that. What I liked was, whoa, that's beautiful. Take a picture of it and frame it properly and – if I happen to be there at the right time of day, great. But I'm, I mean, I remember reading this book by Galen Rowell, who was one of my favorite photographers. And on one side of the book, it's called um, Mountain Light, I think. And one side of the book, you've got a photograph. And on the other side, the story of how he got the photograph. And he took a lot of photographs at high altitude. So some of them were like, oh, yeah, I camped out for four days waiting for, you know, the moon to be right behind the mountain just as the sun was going down. And the first night there was cloud cover and the second night it, it didn't line up properly. And, you know, I finally got it on the fourth night or I didn't get it at all. And I had to like go back. And then a month later when the full moon was coming, I hiked back up this mountain and I stayed there and I finally got it then. And my camera froze up, but I had a second camera. It's like, holy shit, a lot of work goes into an image like that. And, um, yeah, I didn't want to do that work because it would have drained the, the, you know, the pleasure out of it. So do what you love. If you love all the bullshit that goes with it, then yeah. But um, 
follow your bliss could refer to what Paul Graham is saying there, which is follow your curiosity. Because it's not just doing this thing over and over again. It's learning about it and going deeper into it and learning different angles of it and different ways of doing it. I think that's much better career advice. All right. I've talked for an hour and a half. My throat hurts and I'm fucking bored listening to myself. I hope you're not or or that you just got bored in the last few minutes. I hope I haven't been boring you because there's so many good podcasts to listen to out there. Um, I've been really enjoying Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. Uh, he, he tells stories so beautifully, really funny and interesting stories. So if you're looking for another podcast, check that out. Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. I'm going to play you out with um, – I love being able to play songs by listeners. This is Bobby Weedman. Or Weidman, I don't know. It's W-E-I-D-M-A-N. Um, he has a, a recent EP called Ghost Stories. And the first track on the EP is Graceland at 4 a.m. Uh, I really like this song. It's um, it's a really interesting, interesting uh, mood. And... Uh, He's listening to Paul Simon Graceland at 4 a.m. And he's uh, he's thinking about life, thinking about some of the frustrations and some of the joys and um, how to get through it. I hope you're getting through it. I hope you enjoy this song. And if you want to hear more from Bobby, um, you should go to his, uh, what is it, his um, website. Yeah, bobbyweedman.com. Check him out. Uh, he's got Spotify, uh, but he says uh, send people to bobbyweedman.com. So that's what I'm going to do. Hope you enjoy this. Thank you for listening. And uh, I will be back with a more conventional podcast episode soon. Love you all. Take care. Sick of always being on best behavior. Tonight I think I'm gonna not worry about the neighbors. Don't really seem like types of call and noise complain. Besides, no one likes the police now anyway. So rack up a few lines and we'll hit ourselves in the morning. For half months rent How many times can they kick you under the bus Another bail outside and one that's not for us Now I'm having thoughts that I don't think that I could speak Alive and did it in 
God's name So long as the dream that we all fell in love with Sleep well, sweet America In the pantheon of myths Now I'll pour my beer out And I'll fill it two times over Break out the good wine and pain 